are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 22, Go Hence Without Day. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. I'm getting to that point in my career where I know a lot of folks who are making the transition from a career with the court back to private practice. I wanted to talk to somebody about this experience, and the first person who came to mind was Tom Hall. Tom is a former clerk of the Florida Supreme Court, who is now in private practice at the Bishop and Mills Law Firm in Tallahassee. My conversation with Tom about his transition back to private practice is coming up next. So, Tom Hall, welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while. You were just one of those guys that I could talk to about most anything appellate-related. It's it's hard to find something in our world that you're not involved in in some way. But but at some point, you and I talked about your transition from you know working at the court for so long back into private practice, and, and I wanted to talk to you some more about that. Uh, now, I know you spent some time in private pra- practice even before the court, but you have spent most of your career working for the government in some fashion, right? I mean, you worked, you were in the Navy, you were a law clerk at the third DCA, you were a staff attorney at the first DCA, uh, even before your, your stint as uh, the clerk of the Florida Supreme Court. Yeah, that's right. I spent, uh, so far I was admitted to the bar in 1980 and then I spent a little over 25 years of that period of time working in the court system in some capacity. And as you said, I was in the Navy uh, for four years back during Vietnam. And so your actual time at the court was, I think, 2000 to what, 2014? Actually, 2013, October um, 31st of 2013 was when I left. And so now you are back into a private practice at Bishop and Mills in Tallahassee. Yeah, the F- Bishop and Mills has offices in Jacksonville and Tallahassee, and but I work almost exclusively out of the Tallahassee office, and I do only appeals. The Bishop and Mills firm does trial work as well, um, but the Tallahassee people do almost exclusively appellate, some trial support, but almost almost all in the appellate courts. And and I saw you also have a consulting practice that you do. Yeah. What happened with that was I had been, you know, in the court system for, especially when I was at the first district court of appeal, where my job there originally started out, I was hired and they called the position an administrative attorney. And I reported directly to the chief judge of the court. And I really did handle a lot of administrative things for the chief judge so that the chief judge could actually be more of a judge and not have to do all that day-to-day administrative stuff. And, you know, they have a judicial assistant, but that's their judicial assistant really for doing cases. And the district courts don't have a separate judicial assistant for the administrative things they do like the Supreme Court does. So at some point they had the idea of having an attorney help with those administrative things. And I applied for that job and I got it. And it was largely it really was largely administrative. I played, to some extent, I played general counsel role for them as well, did some things like that. 
Um, but it was really, I did some case related work on occasion, uh, but mostly it was just administrative stuff dealing, working with other people in the court system. I used to joke that I was on permanent loan to Oscar for anything related to appellate work. Um, because at one point I served on a committee and I was the only one on the committee that had any appellate experience. And so then virtually every committee they put together, I got named to be the appellate person to be on that committee. And so uh, that sounds like that was perfect training for, for your next job, right? Well, it actually, <laughs> it actually wasn't, it was good training for a lot of the job, but it was not good training for the other part of the job as well. I had, when I'd been at the first, I did supervise a bunch of attorneys. They were almost always people right out of law school. Uh, for the most part, what they did was uh, work on memorandum on the post-conviction and criminal appeals. And I supervised them and reviewed their work and all that. And I had, there was a set of secretaries for central staff there at the first, and I supervised the secretaries. Um, but when I went to the court, you know, that the Supreme Court, that role was different. Yes, there was a lot of serving on committees as part of what I did there too. But, you know, I really ran the court clerk's office day to day, although in every part of that, I had just excellent chief deputy clerks who, as I said in my retirement speech at the court, those were the people who really ran the clerk's office day to day. I was, I was, I, I often said that I was more the, you know, if you're, I'm big into college football and I was more the kind of coach that was the administrator thing all over everything, as opposed to the kind of coach who's there in the trenches doing stuff every day. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's what it was more like. Right. And so I saw that you also do some non-legal consulting. So that's related to court administration. Yeah. And I, and I apologize. I got distracted on that other thing, but yeah, what I, what happened on that was when I was leaving, uh, I actually got approached by the, the executive director of the Florida court clerks and comptrollers about doing some work from them for them because they wanted somebody that would, try to be a liaison between them and the court system, somebody who talked the court system's language as they told me at the time. And so I said, well, I didn't want to be an employee. And they said, well, that's okay. We can do it as a contractor. So I formed a little LLC and eventually they hired me on a contract basis to do that. Uh, and I've, I've been doing that ever since. Um, and I still do that. Uh, that's become a in fact, my role with them has increased pretty significantly over the years to the point now where I'm pretty much full time in the sense that uh, I spend a lot of time working for them. I work from my home office. I seldom go into the office. Um, and then really, actually, I then got quite a few other clients over the past six or seven years where just by word of mouth, people heard I was doing this. So I was hired by a number of different companies over the years to try to work with the court system to do whatever some issue a company or an individual had with the court system from an administrative point, not not legal, but you know, who can I who can we talk to to have a better system for doing X, Y, or Z and how can we interact better with the court? So I've been doing that for you know, as I said, six or seven years. And then 
at some point, uh, you know, I had, when I left the court, I knew I didn't really want to work full time, even though I'm now pretty much working full time. Um, but <laughs> Funny how that happens. I know. And, uh, so I, I really consider a lot of different things. I, I talked to, you know, there were law firms candidly that I reached out to. There were definitely law firms who reached out to me. I had, um, I had more than one offer to come into a law firm and uh, be somebody who would create an appellate division within their firm. They already had lawyers who did uh, appellate work, but those lawyers were really working in whatever division they were in. Like one of the firms I talked to, they did a lot of environmental work. Uh, they did a lot of other kinds of things, and they had lawyers who did appeals and were good lawyers, really actually good appellate lawyers, people who appealed appeared before the appellate courts all the time, but they didn't have, at least from their perspective, somebody who was looking at the overall picture for what are we doing in appellate and how much are we making sure our positions are consistent across clients, all of that sort of stuff. And I was actually very interested in those positions, but it was going to mean working full time. It was going to mean supervising a bunch of people again, which I really didn't want to do. Um, so ultimately I took this offer to do the work part-time with the, um, with the clerks association. And as I said, that led to other things. And then I guess it was probably six months or so, maybe not that long after I'd left when we were at a, I don't know if it was at a bar convention. We were somewhere where there were a bunch of lawyers around and, and my wife was talking to John Mills, who we knew personally, you know, from other stuff. And uh, she said to John, you know, you, something along the lines of, gosh, you ought to hire Tom to do some appeals for you. And so immediately John came to me because I had actually, when I was clerk, and I don't know exactly when this was, I know I, of course, had to disclose it to the court. But at that time, John had approached me uh, about joining their firm. And we had some lengthy talks about it, but ultimately I decided to stay at the court at that time. So at any rate, after my wife said that to John, he approached me and we worked out an arrangement that I was happy with and, and I, he was happy with. And so I joined the firm uh, and started doing some appellate work for John. At that time, it was the Mills firm. So what was it? that timing wise, why did you decide to leave the court when you did? And I, I want to say retire, but you're doing so much that it's hardly a retirement. So it's more of a leaving, but what, what was it that pushed you to do it when you did it? Well, it's, it's interesting you say that about not really being retired because I have two sons and both of them, uh, I think almost every time they talk to me, they go, you're supposed to be retired, right, dad? <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a sort of running joke in our family, but, um, what really prompted me to leave was the state has a program commonly referred to as DROP, which stands for Deferred Retirement Option Program. And essentially yes. what it does is it pays you a, a lump sum of money essentially to leave early so that you don't stay until you're 75 or whatever. Um, and the way that program works, once you reach a certain age and have a certain number of years in for the state, you have a short window of time in which you can opt into that program. Back then, 
once you opted into the program, you technically retired. It set your salary level for retirement purposes for calculating your retirement pay, but then you continued to work for the for the court system uh, for five years, and they paid you your retirement that you would have gotten, but they put it into uh, an annuity, uh, which at the time was an extremely good annuity that uh, paid compound interest so that you, when you actually then left the court, you got a pretty major big lump sum payment, which of course, you know, I immediately diverted to a for you know, 401k retirement program. Mm -hmm. So that's what prompted me to leave when I did. Um, It was interesting at the time you could retire, you could leave the uh, state system for 30 days and then you could come back and be rehired. Um, I had actually discussed doing that with the court and then I was going to stay another five years or so. But between the time I entered the program and I left, they changed that so you couldn't come back. Um, but I was actually at the time I left, I was I was ready to move on to a new challenge. Uh, I really I loved working at the court. I liked the job, you know, ninety nine percent of the time. But I was really ready to do something different. Had you always had the thought that at some point you would leave and go back into private practice, or was this something that just sort of, you know, you you figured out as you went along? No, you know, I I had always thought that once I left, I wanted to do appellate practice and I wanted to do it part time. And I had this great role. I had these great role models of former justices, many who did exactly that. They would retire, uh, and they would go with a law firm and they would not work full time and they got to work on some really good cases uh, because people would come to them with great cases and they got to do a lot of great oral arguments. You know, it was really, I mean, it, there was a period of time when justices would retire and three or four months later, you'd see them before the court arguing some big constitutional case, a lot of constitutional ballot cases, that sort of thing. And it, and I had talked to a number of them about what that was like. And um, so I had, I had all, you know, once I became clerk of court and was into that, you know, say four or five years, I had always thought that that's kind of what I wanted to do when I left. I was, you know, it's great working for the court system, but at some point you are, you have to be neutral all the time. And, uh, you know, I love when I was doing it before, I loved appellate practice. I still, think the best thing ever about practicing law is being able to do an oral argument. And I truly mm-hmm. missed it. I missed doing oral arguments because um, uh, it's such a great legal experience. So what is your practice like now, your appellate practice? What, what sorts of cases do you handle and what, you know, how much time, how much time are you working at practicing appellate law? Well, it, it fluctuates quite a bit from year to year, depending on what we're doing and, um, you know, what's happening and, and what my consulting firm is doing. So, for example, in the past, say, nine to nine months to a year, I haven't done a whole lot of appellate work because I've um, – had some additional demands on the consulting thing. And I've, you know, been compensated accordingly for do that, but it sort of took time away from being able to, uh, do, do stuff for the firm. 
The other thing is our firm does a lot of tobacco litigation. Um, and because I was at the Supreme Court when the Engel case was decided, um, you know, the firm came to the conclusion that it, I probably wasn't able to take part in those Engel derivative cases. You know, when they decertified the case class, all those people had to certain amount of time to file their individual cases, whatever. So ultimately, we made a decision that I wouldn't take part in those. And we did the, there's a letter you're supposed to send advising the court. Uh, when you leave the Supreme Court, there's a letter you're supposed to send to them saying, hey, I'm not working on anything that was pending at the time. So we did that and we did a pretty extensive letter uh, to the court back on that and said that I wouldn't be working on the tobacco cases. And there were a few other cases pending at the time that we said I won't be working on as well. But but mm-hmm. normally what happens is one of the things that's happened over time in working with the court is I have worked on a lot of the cases that we handle where um, they're the real big issue cases um, in the sense that uh, like, for example, the, we've had we've had a number of cases where the League of Women Voters is challenging something that somebody did. You know, we our firm was the one that uh, filed the case trying to determine which governor got to appoint the the incoming justices that would come in. Uh, there's been another a, a number of those kinds of cases. And I've worked a lot on those kinds of cases. And so sometimes that can be really busy, real intensive. You usually have a lot of short turnarounds in those. So it gets, re- you know, you're really consumed with what you're doing on that. Um, I do a lot of, I still do this, even though I'm not done as much directly for the firm, but as you might imagine, I get a lot of calls from attorneys wanting to sort of pick my brain about some issue they're going to have at the Florida Supreme Court and what do I think and how do I get there and, you know, technical questions and all that. And I, you know, we took the position in the firm that when I joined that I was perfectly fine to answer those kinds of questions for people. We don't charge people for doing that. It's just, you know, it's something you do as a professional appellate attorney who's trying to, as you and I have talked about, our own self, you know, there's a different level, I think, of professionalism in the appellate among appellate attorneys. Not that trial attorneys aren't, but appellate attorneys have this little group that seems to bond together, and it doesn't matter which side of the issue you're on; you're helpful to each other. So I've I do a, I do a lot of that. I've had um, I've had I think I've had three or four cases at the Supreme Court where people have come with kind of unique issues. Um, I've done more than once. I've done stuff where people come and say, you know, what we'd really like you to do is look at this case and we'll pay you, but we really are hoping you'll tell our client that this is kind of waste of their money because they'll never get to the Supreme Court. Uh, And I've done a couple of those, but I also did one where I looked at it and I thought, wow, actually, I think you have a chance of getting the Supreme Court and actually pretty decent chance of winning. And then we, we took that case and you know, I did, you know, most of the work I still worked with. We didn't, the appellate attorneys who were in it at the DCA stayed in the case, of course. And we, we did it and we won that case that led to some other cases. And then, then that, that attorney hired us to do some other work in other cases. So 
I've been doing some of that. Um, so it's, it's just varied over a period of time as to what I'm doing and how busy I am. Um, it just, it does, it really does fluctuate up and down a lot, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the nature of the practice always, right? It seems like it's, we're either too busy or not busy enough, even when we're trying to work full time. So I can imagine trying to juggle it when you're, when you're trying not to be full time is, is a challenge. Yeah, And especially when I'm trying to juggle the consulting thing too, I've got to make sure I do what those clients need done as well. What have you found surprising about being back in private practice? Anything that that you you weren't really expecting or is different than what you thought? I think I'm not sure I was really uh certainly wasn't a hundred percent surprised, but I because I knew this was happening, but I I was surprised by the level of it, and that's how specialized people have become. You um even among appellate attorneys, it used to be you specialized in appeals, but now I see more and more you specialize on certain kinds of appeals because the law changes so quickly that it's really hard to keep up with all kinds of different areas of the law. Um, it really is really hard to do that. And so that sort of surprised me. Um the other thing, and I didn't notice this so much when I certainly when I was working at Supreme Court, uh, although I, in hindsight, I probably should have, but I didn't notice how much the appellate courts seem so concerned about timeliness and are not willing to grant extensions like when I was in private practice before I went back to work with the court. You know, back then I worked in, I practiced in Miami. Uh, mostly at the third, sometimes at the fourth. Um, if you wanted an extension of time at the third, you got it. I mean, you could get a year's worth of extensions of time. The court never, as long as the other side didn't vehemently eject, the court never said you can't have the extension. It was just the way it was run, you know? I mean, they just didn't seem to be concerned about that unless maybe the client complained to the court, but that was about it, you know, so that was kind of a, you know, a big surprise to me. The other thing that I truly did not really appreciate and, and was a surprise was how appellate attorneys these days, literally, at least in my experience and most everybody I know, they practice in every single appellate court. When I was practiced before, mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I practiced mostly in the third, a little bit in the fourth. That was it. You know, I'm on the Supreme Court if you got the occasional case there. But that was, I mean, nobody who worked in Miami practiced in the first DCA, you know. But but now right. everybody practices in every one of them. You have to know all, all, all six, but, you know, mostly all five courts. This episode is again sponsored by CSBA. But they've slightly updated their name to reflect their focus on court-related surety bonds. CSBA is now... Court Surety Bond Agency, emphasizing the fact that CSBA is the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. CSBA has recently created a new website that is a great resource for appellate attorneys, includes general information on the nuts and bolts of securing an appellate bond with specific forms of collateral, an interactive map with each state's stay and appeal bond requirements, and a list of surety companies certified for use in federal court. 
be sure to check it out and bookmark the site in your favorite browser. If you have a client needing the stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact Court Surety Bond Agency. They can be reached at courtsurety.com or toll-free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. My thanks to CSBA for being a longtime sponsor of the Issues on Appeal podcast. What, um, so what was your first oral argument that you did after you getting back into private practice? Well, it, w- it was a mortgage foreclosure case. Um, what happened was, and this is when you were talking about things you do, I've been hired quite a few times to just do oral argument. Somebody's already written the brief um, and they get oral argument and for whatever reason they or looking for somebody to do oral argument, and and I've been hired to do that. And this particular one, it was a mortgage foreclosure case. Uh, it was not. It was actually not a very complicated mortgage foreclosure case. The, in this case, it wasn't even about the mortgage. It was about whether the um, homeowner had been properly served. Um, and the briefs had already been written. They were by an attorney who writes really excellent briefs, and it was. Um, but who's really actually not that comfortable going to oral argument. They'd been having an associate go to oral argument, but the associate was kind of getting, I wouldn't say bullied, but was kind of, you know, the court was, you know, pretty all over them. And so they decided to hire somebody else to do the oral arguments. And so I did that. It was a fairly, as I said, it was a non-final appeal. We didn't have a lot of time. Uh, I thought in all candor, it was a slam dunk. We were going to win. Uh, but the other side had raised a really interesting issue in the sense that th- they were not an appellate attorney and they raised this issue about um, that it shouldn't really be appealable, that that they that's something that we could appeal at the end as a part of the appealing a final order when, you know, there's a rule of appellate procedure that specifically says you can appeal that as a non-final order. So, so I got, you know. Um, I, right off the bat, I got questions about that and I was explaining, you know, that's the rule exists for this because if you haven't been served, you shouldn't have to be in the case, you know, all those things you say. Uh, and then I thought I answered all those questions well. And then the other guy got up and I thought candidly, they weren't buying his argument at all. Um, so then, and the kind of the, and I was, I was comfortable really from the moment I stood up. I mean, even though I had not done an oral argument in a long time and I probably spent way more time preparing than I should have. And, and, you know, I was a little nervous, to, you know, and what court was, was this in third. Um, so, and I was okay. really, you know, of course I worked there and I was familiar with the courtroom and all of that and how the process works there. It hadn't the process about how it worked internally was still exactly the same as when I'd worked there, you know, 30 years before that. But none of the judges were the same. Well, there was actually a couple of judges who were still there, but um, but I didn't have any on my panel. Um, and so I was a li- little nervous, even in the lawyer's lounge waiting, you know, but as soon as I stood up and said my name and, uh, of course, immediately got a question, I was totally fine after that and wasn't nervous at all and handled it. And then um, when I, the other side, did their argument and I got up and did a short little reply. Um, and then I, 
got, you know, I got ready to sit down uh, and Linda Wells, who was the presiding judge, said, you know, um, well, welcome back to the third DCA, Mr. Hall. She hadn't she had not been there when I worked there. Uh, and I, of course, thanked her. And then one of the other judges on the panel who, gosh, the name is escaping right now, who's a senior judge who had been there, said, just said, well, since we're going to talk to the, you know, the attorneys here, I just want to thank both attorneys for a very professional presentation. Uh, and it was not antagonistic, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, we sometimes we don't see that a lot these days which I thought was just a wonderful thing to hear after your first oral argument. Um, yes. And then, of course, you know, three weeks later, I got an opinion that said, we affirm without prejudice to re- re-raise the issue in the trial court. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was one of those things where you can never tell how it's going, uh, especially, especially no. when you're the one standing at the podium. You know, you can't tell how it's going. Now, what about have you been back to do argument at the Florida Supreme Court? I have. I've done um, – I've argued twice in rule cases. Um, um, you know, the one, there was one – I forget. One year there was a, there was the regular cycle report was being done, and but the, but the appellate rules had filed a pretty extensive comment opposing something that the Rules of Judicial Administration Committee was done. So uh, Kristen Norris was going to do the regular argument. She asked me if I would do the argument in the RJA case, which I did. And then I did another rules case I argued. I have not argued a substantive case there. Um, Generally, those have been done by John Mills from our firm, or maybe some other firm that, you know, we worked on the stuff and I was, you know, there sitting at council table, but I didn't really do the argument. Yeah. And how did, did that feel weird to be back or did it feel comfortable? No, it felt comfortable. You know, that's one of the, one of the things I tell people all the time is, you know, the court, the Florida Supreme Court sits in administrative conference uh, every week, uh, every Wednesday in which they discuss all this. They discuss some cases, mostly cases in which they did not have OA, but they also discuss all the administrative things they have to do. And there was lots of times when I would write memorandum to the court about something we wanted to change the way the court operated, or I would be part of a committee and I'd be sitting in. And so the clerk sits in on those administrative conferences. So I was used to sitting there before those seven justices answering questions and dealing with, uh, you know, whatever things they had to say about it and all that sort of stuff. So I felt, you know, you get a real feel for who asked what and how they are and all of that stuff. So I felt, you know, very comfortable standing there. Um, I know in the rules case, I stood up to make the argument on behalf of the uh, appellate section and Justice Periente, before I could even get my name out, said, well, I know you're here as, you know, representing appellate rules, but I got a question for you on this other thing. Uh, and I want to know what you think in your former capacity as clerk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. I, Good way to I know. Well, that actually really did relax me because I was used to getting those kinds of questions in the conference sure. room all the time. So, uh, so it felt, you know, it felt fine. It was a little different though, because I, I was, I had a couple of things about where, there were things that I would have done 
under other circumstances that I wasn't sure if I could do when I was there as an advocate. For example, um, Judge Scott Stevens from Tampa was arguing on behalf of the rules of judicial administration, and somebody on the court asked him what the makeup of the rules of judicial administration committee was. I mean, in other words, how many criminal lawyers, civil lawyers, family, you know, appellate, all of that. And he said, I don't know, you know, well, I had candidly thought that question might come up. So I had staff on the Florida bar type me up a list of that, what it was. And I had it sitting right in front of me. And I was really in a cooperation. And especially since I know judge Stevens really well, I think we're friends, you know, I wanted to hand it to him and say, here, you know, here's the answer. But at the same time, I was I hesitated and it didn't do it because I was afraid it might make him look bad that if I, I was giving him the answer, you know. So I just mm-hmm. I just waited mm-hmm. till I got up and said, somebody asked this and, you know, here's the answer. Uh, but it was that was kind of different. There were things like that that happened that uh, as clerk, I think I was able to anticipate as former clerk, I was able to anticipate kinds of questions that might come that the average lawyer appearing there probably wouldn't think of. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can see that. What Do you have a relationship with uh, John Tomasino, the current clerk of the yeah, court? Yeah, I do. We get along really well. Uh, in fact, John is, I think he has done just an amazing job since taking over. You know, the I've talked to other people about this. Uh, the court goes through cycles just like most institutions do. and. You know, when Sid White was there before me, he did just an awesome job and brought a lot of professionalism to that office. You know, he was there when the scandals took place. Um, And, you know, sometimes when the whole court's under attack, you know, that can trickle down to the clerk. But he was there, got through all that, was well respected by everybody. But, you know, he reached some point in his career where you know, he was being the clerk and he was not interacting with people from the bar or going to bar meetings and all of that as a natural thing. So when I came in, you know, they were a number of the justices, you know, not everyone, of course, but a number were interested in, in sort of reinstituting that role for the clerk to play. And I did that a lot. And then by the time I was ready to leave, that had been developed. And, you know, we were making the transition to electronic filing. John has a great great technical background. I am not a tech person uh, at all. I'm always asking my son or my wife or somebody else, you know, how do I do this on my computer? Where John, John knows all that stuff really well. So he, he, he came along right at the right point with the skills to sort of play a very different role than what I played at the court as clerk and it's worked out really well for the court, I think. And, but yes, we're friends. We work on, we're on committees together. Uh, I'm on a committee with him now. We just had a meeting on, I think it was Monday where we're trying to get um, a system in which prisoners could file electronically as opposed to sending paper um, and do it through some interactive forms that would make it easier for them to file something that candidly would be more focused and would be more helpful to the court than, you know, the sort of handwritten petitions you get now from prisoners. And so he, he and I are working on that together with, 
a number of judges and people from the Department of Corrections and all that. So, yeah, we get along real well. And, and we I still belong to the National Conference of Appellate Court Clerks. You're you're allowed to um, belong as a retired member. Uh, and I I go to that meeting every year and John goes and, you know, we get to spend some time there just socially as friends. So it's been a it's been a very good experience working with him. And then last year, the practice before the Florida Supreme Court. Um, normally the clerk gives a clerk's perspective, but last year he asked me to take part in that as well. So we kind of did a joint presentation on that. So Tom, there are a lot of uh, folks who are going to be in your shoes, right? Who are in drop or who are, uh, you know, ending a long career and for the courts or in government, are there are there lessons that you've learned? I mean, is there advice that you have for other people who are kind of in your boat? Yeah, I think so. Well, one I'm sure you could appreciate is after 25 years of not having to keep time slips, and I still call them time slips because the, because that's the <laughs> way we kept them when I was in private practice before. That's a right. real big transition that that is an adjustment. You know, when you do it as a lawyer and you get used to it, but when you haven't done it for that long. It takes you, you have to really get back in that mindset. And it, and it's even worse these days because you're, you don't, when I was practicing law before, you went into the office and you sat at your desk and you might go to hearings occasionally and then you came back and you didn't, you, you weren't out that much. You, were, you certainly, well, I had a cell phone toward the end of that private practice, but you didn't have cell phones. You didn't have laptops. You didn't have iPads. So for me, especially, you know, I'm in meetings that I'm doing consulting work and then I'll get law firm phone calls and I, I'll, you know, type back emails and stuff. And so it's, you know, I don't have, I'm not like sitting at my computer with my little time slip thing right beside me, like I used to be in private practice a long time ago. So keeping track of that has, was, was difficult at first. And I finally bought a notebook devoted exclusively to that. So I could just write it a note down to myself at the time and then, you know, go back and enter them later and make sure they got entered and that, you know, I had accurate time slips. Mm -hmm. So that's a big issue that I think people, if they're going to practice law again, you really need to get used to. Um, the other, you know, sort of really big one for me was that when you work at the court, and this is true if you even change law firms, but it's especially true at the court. Um, the technology you have, it's not always the latest and greatest, although recently the court does get the latest and greatest technology. In fact, in some ways, uh, it's a leader. You know, I remember having a Palm Pilot before anybody had one because we were testing them. And I remember having an iPad before anybody had one because we were testing those. Um, but you you learn the technology you have. And then when you change jobs and you leave the state system, you're going to have technology that's very, very different than what you had before. And it's a real, uh, it was a much, much harder adjustment uh, than I thought it would be learning to use new technology where everything is done differently than what you're used to. Um, plus, when I was at Supreme Court, I supervised the tech people. So I had the ability to go, you know, pick up the phone and say, hey, my computer's not working, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And, and, they, and since I was, their, since I was their boss, I got immediate service, you know. Um, 
and that's not, you know, our firm has great tech people and all that, but you know, if my, my Mac isn't working personally, I can't call the law firm tech people and say, Hey, what's wrong with my Mac? Uh, so that's a big issue. Um, and you know, when I was at the Supreme court and this is a way for a lot of people who leave, you have a whole lot of support people who support what you do. Uh, and when you go into private practice, this, this is one of the areas of law that has really changed a lot is especially in pellet. You don't have an army of people working for you as a lawyer to support the lawyer. Lawyers do their own work these days and they type their own briefs and they do all that. They, you know, I mean, we have paralegals who do a lot of work for us, but not like it used to be when I was in private practice where you had a full-time secretary. And generally when I, you know, especially when I was at Kenny Knockwalter in Miami, there was a whole group of paralegals who did all the other stuff for you to where you just basically had to write and go to court. Um, and, you know, that's not the way it works. I, most law firms, especially boutique law firms, just don't work that way anymore. Um, you know, and it's good. I mean, once you adjust to it, I really like it. And you are self-sufficient and you can, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, my wife and I, we made a decision a long time ago that when we reached retirement age, we were going to, we were going to spend a lot of our money, our discretionary money traveling. We wanted to do that. We've had four foreign exchange students live with us over the years. We got a very different perspective of the world because of that. And so we, we wanted to travel. I mean, we'd have these kids who were like 14 and 15 and 16 years old, and they would come to the United States and they would speak English. You know, and they would speak their own language and lots of them, the girl from India could speak five languages and we spoke English and nothing else, you know, and we learned a lot about their countries when they were there. And so we wanted to travel and we do that. And I, and when I was in private practice before, there was no way that I could have gone off to uh, Italy for two months and practice law, but I can do that now, you know. I've told the story before. I've filed pleadings from Russia, you know. Um, so, and I think that's a difference that people transitioning out of government um, need to recognize that you have a lot more freedom than you have when you're working for the government in the sense that you can do stuff that would just be impossible to do if you were still working for the government. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know from following, you know, some of your adventures that uh, you and your wife work from all over the country and all over the world and often from a sports bar somewhere. But uh, it's always the question, where is Tom working from today? Yeah, my, <laughs> my wife now on Facebook has taken to posting this thing called My View Today, you know, and a lot of times it's sitting, you know, it's sitting in some restaurant or bar where you have this gorgeous thing. Um, but you know, we also post pictures where we're sitting there working with our, both of us are sitting there with our laptops working. I've got a, I've got a really great picture that we both love. We were in Lucerne, Switzerland, and it's about, uh, gosh, it was some, it was like 10, 11 o'clock at night. And we were both on phone conferences back to the United States, um, you know, just doing these meetings by phone conference that you were able to do, but we were sitting there along the river and, beautiful at a beautiful restaurant bar and just having a wonderful time but we were able to have a legit phone conference and get stuff done which we candidly couldn't travel if we couldn't do that no that makes the work a little bit easier sometimes yep oh yeah 
So let me ask you if at this point, if you could go back or had to go back to the court uh, for some reason, the experiences you've, that you've had now in the last you know six or seven years in private practice, do you think that would affect the way you do your job, like your outlook as clerk or any of the things that you would focus on? Yeah, I think I brought, I, I brought, um, one of the things that I was sort of proud of when I worked at the court in the court system is, you know, I had been in private practice in Miami in two law firms, both very, very busy law firms. Uh, and when I got to the court, I brought that experience of what it's like to be a practicing lawyer. So when you're talking to lawyers about some problem they're having, you, you have that experience that I thought always helped me. Um, with what I would do. And when we had attorneys work in the clerk's office, you know, most of them were right out. And especially when I was supervised the people at the first DCA, you know, they're right out of law school and they really, they don't have that perspective of what it's like to practice. And they don't understand why the brief doesn't address what uh, all other 50 states are doing when it's a case of first impression. You know, they don't understand that private practice lawyers sometimes don't have the time to go through all that kind of stuff, or they don't realize they don't fully grasp the court once that sort of stuff. And so I think I now have um, that experience sort of even more ingrained and more, uh, more conscious of that when attorneys need more time, uh, it's not because they're goofing off. It's because they're, handling lots of clients and they're and they're serving the bar by being on rules committees and they're doing those other kinds of things that are important to the profession um that when they're uh when they're when they have a question to ask you know they they're really you know they're most times it's because they haven't they can't find the answer uh you know it's not you know, sometimes people call and you would say, hey, it's right there in the book, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I now I now really understand why some I used to it used to sort of bug me that would people would I, they would talk to the deputy clerk in charge, but then they would want to talk to me. And I, I almost always I'd say, you know, that deputy clerk who works that case, they know way more about that case than I do. You know, and like if they're the specialized at uh Deputy clerks in, in particular, you know, people who do the death cases and people who do the bar cases and all that, they know that stuff inside and out way better than I do. You don't really need to talk to me. You know, now I understand sometimes you do need to talk to the clerk because it's not you're not really asking the how do you do it question. You're asking more of the policy question and you need the clerk to answer that question. I think I'd be far more um, accommodating uh for lack of a better word, on on those kinds of things when they wanted to talk to the clerk directly as opposed to just having the deputy clerk who, you know, who did it um, for sure. Well, Tom, thanks. I, this has been great. I'm I'm glad we got to talk about some of these things. I, so I want to just say uh, I thank you for all of your service. I mean, your service to our country, your service to the courts, your service to the bar, uh, your uh, like I said, you have your fingers in everything and uh, involved in a number of things that you are also involved in. I see you everywhere. And so I, I, I do think I get the joke about the retirement because I know you're super busy. And uh, I appreciate you taking out the time to uh, to be on the podcast. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. I 
Um, I've listened to some, although not all of the podcasts, and I found, you know, people bring a very different perspective. You know, we, and especially among all, we see each other at meetings and we talk socially, but it's, it's good to get, hear people talk about what they really do day to day, which candidly, we don't, generally, we don't get the chance to talk about that when we see each other at bar meetings. No, that's right. And yeah, it's, it's fun to be able to take a deep dive into some of these things that are, are important. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So yeah, thank you for having me on. I've, re- I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Tom. My thanks to Tom Hall for being on the podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. And that being said, if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which are available in your podcast player or on our website, issuesonappeal.com. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is in the show notes. Please take a moment now, add it to your contacts, so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. Now, I know there was one more thing. Right, thanks. That was my assistant, Remy. She wanted me to remind you that the next episode, number 23, will be recorded live following the Executive Council meeting for the Florida Bar Appellate Practice Section on February 6th in Orlando. My guests will be the officers of the section. Anybody who wants to come see the show recorded live is welcome. I hope I'll see you there. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.